truly looked at yourself before God. Spurgeon, in a sermon that he preached, said, Every wise merchant will occasionally hold a stock-taking when he will cast up his accounts, examine what he has on hand, and ascertain decisively whether his trade is prosperous or declining. Every man who is wise in the kingdom of heaven will do the same by himself. He will always cry, Search me, O God, and try me. And he will frequently set apart special seasons for self-examination to discover whether things be right between God and his soul. End quote. Our times of communion ought to be times and occasions for this, though I fear those occasions may come and go without us properly examining our own hearts. It's an unpopular practice to actually assess our souls. And yet, in the real world, we would be appalled if others went about their business and handle things with such lack of care as we do at times our own souls. If it was found out that those who run airplanes did not assess regularly the airworthiness of the planes, we would be, we would be frightened to get on such planes. And the same for vessels. Their seaworthiness must be assessed regularly by those who are experienced in assessing and looking at the weaknesses and making sure that she is worthy. So it should be for ourselves. The apostle refers to those, look at verse 11, called a brother. There seemingly was another epistle that the apostle had written, verse 9. Just as not everything that the apostles and prophets spoke has recorded for us, so it is true with the things that they wrote. Not everything is compiled into the canon, but there was something written, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Now he's writing again, verse 11, now I have written unto you not to keep company of any man that is called a brother, be a fornicator or covetous or an adulterer or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. I was struck here by this language and, of course, the whole context which puts before us the importance of the purity of the church, that the church is to be a pure community, a pure body, and those who lay claim to be in the family of God may prove themselves not to be by their actions. The passage, of course, is helpful in the subject and doctrine of church discipline has with it the aim of at least two primary things, though no doubt other things are included, the recovery of the rebellious and the purity of the community. We know that the apostle is not desirous that the individual who is guilty of the sin named in the opening section, uh, that he be destroyed utterly. His desire is that discipline might be exercised, that the very least, verse 5, he may be, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus that with loving, charitable discipline, he may awaken to the reality of his condition, repent, and be recovered, rather than utterly destroyed, pursuing a life of sin unrebuked 
and undisciplined. Being directed by this, I trust the Lord will help in our meditation here tonight because my, my hope is really just to, as we come to pray, pray for the purity of our church. The purity of ourselves, obviously, we are all individuals. We need to be pure ourselves, but then be asking God to make and keep us pure. It's important to the Lord. And we have here the exhortation, the apostle bringing in this, this sense that what was done by the Jews in the past, where they would make sure there was no leaven, and they would purge out the household during the feast time and Passover, he says that this is still relevant. Even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And he's saying spiritually, let us do as our forefathers did with regard to the Passover, as those even currently in the present time, Jews who would practice Passover would be careful to get rid of the leaven during time of Passover in that season of unleavened bread. There was a careful, disciplined, orderly way in which they went about that. And the apostle is saying, that has not gone away. Though we may not practice Passover in the same fashion, the spiritual practice of purging out that which offends God is still relevant. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not die on Calvary's cross for His people to be an impure people. Called a brother. I have two headings here. The first is brief, very brief. That is basic beliefs of, a tr of true brothers and sisters. Basic beliefs of true brothers and sisters. I think it's important for us to realize that what men believe plays into this, though it's not the context here. If someone calls themselves a brother, then they ought to believe certain things. I, I wrote down just seven primary things that you can't deny. And if you find someone denying these things, you can immediately write them off. Just these, per, these people aren't the Lord's. First, believe the Old and New Testaments to be inerrant, infallible, and inspired by God. It's fundamental. Second, to believe the doctrine of the Trinity, as understood by our forefathers, as is in our confession, Nicene Creed, and other documents. Third, to believe the second person of the Trinity, our Lord Himself, assumed a human nature. To believe He came in the flesh, the Son of God took on flesh. That's the third thing. You deny that, you can't be a Christian. Fourth, believe that our Lord Jesus will return visibly in the future. Fifth, believe justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Sixth, believe obedience to God's Word is the fruit of salvation. And seventh, believe there is a literal eternal punishment for the unsaved. Seven very basic doctrines, which if you deny, I would say to you, from my assessment, you're not welcome here, not welcome in this body, and I would say you're probably not saved. Those things cover the basics. It's important for us to make sure we have that. Someone calls himself a brother, make sure these things are understood. But secondly, here's where we'll spend our time before we seek the Lord. Basic practice of true brothers and sisters. There is basic practice. The apostle understands that those who are called a brother should live a certain way. And if they don't, if they live in the fashion as is described in verse 11, then they have no right to be assessed as a brother, even though they be called a brother. Now, 
when we look at the church, we realize that it's not possible for us to know that every single person is right before God. We simply can't. And this is part of what our Lord deals with in, in Matthew 13 when he speaks of the harvest. And should we go and try and rip up the tares? No, let both grow together until harvest. Lest in ripping up the tares you pull up the wheat also. Those in the church who profess themselves to be the Lord's, they will affirm the truths we've already considered. Also, we might say, there's a certain practice that they do here positively. They would keep company with one another. Verse 11, Now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called. So the assumption is they will keep company. They will dwell together. The maverick believer doesn't exist in the mind of the apostle. The one who lives on his own, lives by his own rules, lives by himself, apart from a community that professes the name of Christ, doesn't have any place in the Word of God, doesn't exist in the mind. And this is so strange to us, but there is, there's no place. There's no place for this. We must be a part of God's people, visibly. The other reality is we can't avoid being around sinful people in the world. Verse 10, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters. You can't, you can't get away from all of these people, for if that was the case, then you must needs go out of the world. And so he's not advocating for monasticism. So these are some things that are true about all believers. But also here is the reality that there must be consequences for professing believers living in open sin. Consequences. They're always welcome to sit under the Word. They're always in a place where they can be admonished by God's people to repent of their sin. But there are certain restrictions placed here. You'll see that, and we'll look at it a little more in just a moment. But such an one know not to eat. There's to be a distance that we are to not keep company. There's some difference here in the relationship because of how they're living. Now, in the Confession of Faith, chapter 30, paragraph 3, we're told that church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deterring of others from the like offenses, from, for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God, which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. This is sinning with a high hand. The sins that are listed here in this text are not those who have thoughts and fight with their thought life. These are people who are living in open sin because that's what can be judged. This is why the apostle is able to judge even though he's not with them. Because it is so commonly reported and there are so many witnesses ratifying what has been declared as going on here that he can say, I know how to judge from afar. How come you don't? The apostle lists six things here. And we live in a day of leniency. But there's a kind of leniency that corrupts society, and we're seeing it. Seeing it in our own day. 
But it's true also of the church. First thing he mentions is a fornicator. Someone in open sexual immorality, similar to what is already going on in the church. This goes across an entire breadth of sins. But with relevance to our day, I can't help but see the merit of the law of Moses with regard to this sin. And the provision that the law gave for it. I was just thinking about this upon reading this again. In Exodus 22, verses 16 and 17. If a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuse to give her unto him, he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. In other words, if you get yourself into this sin, the right way to handle it is to be prepared to marry her. And the only one who can actually stop it is the father of the woman, which of course in consultation with the girl and the family and maybe even the other family involved as well may decide that this should not go ahead. But he has the last say. He says whether this should go ahead or not. And I imagine, I imagine that that was helpful as a deterrent to think twice about lightly engaging in the sin. This, again, it's basically repeated in Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 and 29. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin which is not betrothed and lay hold on her and lie with her and they be found, then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver and she shall be his wife. Again, bringing these two together, you realize the only way to stop this is if the father disagrees. If he says this, does not go ahead. Can you imagine how different society would be if this was, if this was how we conducted our affairs today? Now, I know some will say, well, that doesn't seem fair, and it can all, you can see all the downsides, but there are downsides to not doing it. And sometimes I, I think really... If we practice something like that, it would be far better in terms of a deterrent and a solution to this sin than our own alternatives. The Lord does not think lightly of this. We must make sure that no matter what's going on in our world, and there's, there is an increasing desensitization to all forms of fornication across all, all expressions and degrees of it. I'm not going to list everything here. But if it's being desensitized in the society, let it not be in your heart and let it not be in this church. God has set an order to break that order as rebellion, to rebel against God as wicked. And you don't get away with it. This is the thing. You don't get away with it. There are consequences to these things. Covetous is another one that he lists here. Of course, again, you can't read the thought life. So this is a manifestation of covetousness that pushes out, becomes visible. And I don't know exactly how this might look. Maybe needless, gainful employment. On the day of worship, that would be covetous. Choosing to move your family to a place where there's no church for material gain, that would be covetous. When we're willing to lie or deceive to protect our income, 
or for material gain, that would be covetous. And there would be, these would be, things would be verifiable. You could, you could see this manifested. There would be those who could testify to it. Idolatry. He mentions idolatry as well, which seems strange, given that this is the church. How can those in the church be given to idolatry when they're confessing the name of Jesus Christ? Again, I don't know exactly. My, my, my thought is most likely there was a form of syncretism going on, where they had professed the name of Christ. They had taken on the, the role of professing themselves to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they haven't entirely abandoned some of the heathen idolatry and worship that was present in their society or things that they were given to from maybe their youth, how they were raised and so on. And this is common. If you go to, on missions, you study missions, you realize that this is a real issue. On the mission field, when you're going in preaching Christ where he's not yet named, you find you can present the gospel and there will be a receptiveness to the gospel and you think you're making headway, but... But you begin to scrape away and you start to realize these people haven't abandoned their other gods. They've just added Jesus in on top of it. Because in their superstition, they just keep acquiring gods because one of those gods may help them out given whatever the circumstances they may find themselves in. And so it takes harder work, not just to bring Christ in, but to push all the other falsehood out. And maybe that was part of what Paul was thinking about. In other words, there's no place for a hybrid life that maintains respectability with heathen beliefs and practices. I say this, it's public. I say it cautiously and I say it with great sorrow that there has been great attention in recent days, at least in some circles, to a high-profile pastor in America who is coming under fire, rightly so, because in his advice to people, and he has a wide, wide scope of influence, in his advice to people, he recommended that it was a, a Christian elderly lady whose grandson was uh, getting married to a transgender person. The pastor gave the counsel that does the grandson know you're standing in Christ and your position and your disapproval with his life? Yes, he does. Now, I don't see any problem with you going to the wedding and even buy a gift. The pastors come under fire, and, and rightly so, because there's a lie in your attendance. A, a wedding is not something you simply observe. It's something you participate in. And when you're asked publicly, is there any impediment, a Christian present there, would be, in an unspoken way, telling a falsehood. Silence would be wrong. And of course, you're attending something that isn't even a wedding or a marriage in the first place. Not by God's definition. So there are all sorts of problems here. And I say to you, that kind of thing is happening. This, this, is, this is some... <laughs> I'm not talking about someone off the wall here. There are many off-the-wall preachers in America. This person is like high-profile believed to be a faithful expositor of the Word. This is idolatry to the culture. If he was asked the question 30 years ago, he would not have given that answer. It would have been unthinkable to give that answer 30 years ago. The Word we have here has not changed over the decades. This is idolatry to the culture. It is giving in to her idols. 
It is accepting what God has forbidden and what God hates. God forbid that kind of thinking come into this church. We start sanitizing what God despises. What brings judgment upon people, not blessing. Giving credibility to people in their wickedness. It grieves my heart that this is where we are, where some of the most faithful voices over the last 40 years are caving to these things. It should break our hearts. Paul also says, a railer, an abusive person, my margin says. This is when hatred, hatred again is internalized often, but now it's manifested. It manifests in words when one uses coarse, harsh, and bitter language as a form of verbal oppression to destroy reputations and wound people. Our words matter. And when someone speaks this way, acts this way, goes on in this manner, Again, this is great sin. A drunkard, little needs to be said there, someone given to intoxicating substances by which they lose their inhibitions and make shipwreck of their testimony. An extortioner, one who uses their might to get what is not due to them or more than what is due to them. They may use physical, financial, or social power to obtain the outcome they seek. They bend the rules to hurt others and benefit themselves. Extortion. No not to eat, Paul says. A prohibition against doing anything with them that acknowledges them as a Christian brother. We can speak to the unruly, but we're not to keep company. This is where words carry into action, where they're able to see the displeasure of God through the response of the body of Christ. Doesn't mean to say we ignore them. Doesn't mean to say we speak ill of them. Far from it. We desire their recovery. And it stems from love, just as God's discipline does. The list that Paul gives here, of course, is not exhaustive, but it will suffice for our consideration tonight. My main point here, beloved, what struck me is the importance of recognizing that the purity of the church matters to our Lord Jesus. And in a culture in which there are prevailing winds that seem almost unstoppable, we must diligently not just set up physical barriers and hope for the best. We need to pray. For except the Lord keep the city, the watchman wakes in vain. Spurgeon once preached that, quote, it is a reasonable thing that sin should be renounced. It is a reasonable thing that sin should be renounced. Not asking something unreasonable here to say to a man, to a woman, renounce your sin. And he gave three reasons. Because it is most inconsistent to suppose that pardon can be given while we continue in sin. It is most inconsistent. To suppose that pardon can be given while we continue in sin. Second, because sin is so grievous to God. And third, because of the mischief it has already done to man. And I care for your fellow man as well. And I would add a fourth. It makes light of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that one can go to the cross and say, there's the answer for my sin, and yet hold on to that same sin, does not compute. In the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15, Paul will argue there, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. Verse 19 and 20, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In the next epistle, he will use language like this in 2 Corinthians six fifteen: What concord hath Christ with Belial? Can't bring these two into fellowship. They don't belong. So do we expect to call God our Father while we do Satan's work? That's what the Pharisees, many of the religious leaders in Christ's day were trying to do, and Christ would not countenance it, would he? Do we imagine we can hold to sin while we seek the blood of Christ to wash it away? As you speak one to another, as you get to know one another, and as you may at times discern one falling into sin, whether it be your children, your spouse, just a friend in the church, brother or sister, don't let it fly, don't let it exist there, don't countenance it. Do we not aspire? Do we not aspire to take this little life we have, this short little life we have, and, and give it to God? Is the language of those we read of in Acts that they were full of faith and of the Holy Ghost not give you an aspiration? Oh Lord, make me like that, not full of sin and of self. Not full of wicked thoughts and practices full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. That's what the world needs, isn't it? That's what turned the world upside down. Man and woman full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost will not come. It will not be known where we countenance, encourage, support, and allow for wicked sin in our lives. May the Lord spare us from grieving Him. We're going to sing before we pray. Please turn 